Welcome back to the Women Who Roar podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Julia Britt. So Dr. Julia is a licensed doctor of naturopathic medicine. She specializes in mental health and she treats conditions like anxiety, disordered eating, and spike bed discontinuation. She's passionate about helping men and women feel better than they believe is possible because she too was a hopeless case and told there wasn't anything to do. In today's interview, we talk about the similarity between substance addiction and relationship addiction, the relationship between empathy and trauma and toxic relationships, what is gaslighting, how it happens, and how to heal for toxic relationships. Dr. Bridge also shares some awesome book recommendations that I have added to the resource library for you. Enjoy, you're going to get a ton out of this. Dr. Julia, how are you today? I'm so good. How are you doing? I'm good, and I'm super excited to have you joining us. I think you are a very exciting guest to me because you have this unique history of being a medical provider and also having some personal experience with toxic relationships. So I think you're going to have a really interesting perspective to bring. I hope so. I mean, if it can help other people. And honestly, it's probably going to help me too, because I think the more we share a story, the more we heal along the way. So absolutely. I think the more we share a story, the more we heal and then the more other people heal. So I think sharing story is so important. On that note, let's kick off by just having you tell us a little bit about your story and history with toxic relationships. You know, I think with, I'm a lot deep to talk about that. I think with my history of toxic relationships, it really shifted dramatically after I got my divorce. Because I don't think my ex-husband was a bad guy. I really don't. We just grew apart because we got together really young and, you know, we had problems and stuff, but nothing that I would say was, you know, outside of us just not being compatible. But I think I had dealt with something pretty traumatic at the time. And so we didn't know it, but I had, after that traumatic event, I was you know, diagnosed incorrectly with borderline personality disorder, actually had PTSD. So I started, you know, seeing everything differently in terms of, you know, what was going to keep me safe. So I started acting out self-harm and my eating disorder, just full on rage. I was becoming sexually promiscuous. I was taking a lot of drugs, drinking a ton. So, and then all of a sudden it seemed that I was no longer attracting the same kind of guy anymore. And (laughs) that led me to the, the classic, quote unquote, the ex, which, you know, we'll just call him Brad to protect the guilty. But, all, uh, you know, with, with him, I was with this particular individual for four years and it was it was an insidious sort of situation because he was so good looking and so charming and such a good communicator. At least I thought so at the time. And he seemed very, very sweet. And I was so busy that I didn't really pay enough attention to all these little signs that were coming up. And I was also ignoring the red flags. So I was so afraid of being left. And I felt so hurt from my past that I didn't really understand what a healthy dynamic was supposed to be. So in the end, and we had broken up so many times. And I think a lot of my friends knew there was a problem. You know, all my friends were like, why are you with Brad? He's literally the worst, you know? Yeah. And, well, no, you just don't see the good parts. And then we're working through it. And then, sure, I'm just not explaining my part and what I did wrong enough and, you know, all that. But I think in the looking back, I'm still seeing just what it, how, I don't know, hard it was for me to handle. And it was, 
things that I think a lot of people that are more empathic or have been traumatized tend to attract. Like this, a classic example would be, you know, I'd say, oh, look, I struggled. I've struggled for years with self-harm. I don't do it now, but that was something I had. And he didn't talk to me for a week and said he wasn't sure he could handle that. And he thought, you know, he wasn't sure he wanted to date me and he anymore. And he thought, you know, this could be bad genetically. He didn't know if kids could be in our future because of me. And and because I was so empathic, I thought, you know, one day it would be hard to be in your shoes to date someone like me. And so the more I dated him, the more it became, well, if I want to keep dating you, I'm going to have to learn to love me less because mm-hmm. that's the only way we're going to work this out. And so it was just a total mindfuck. So breaking up was the hardest breakup. I think the toxic breakups are the hardest. Break- oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think so many women who listen to that part are going to feel like they've lived through so much of what you just shared. It's very relatable. And you brought up two really interesting things that I talk a lot about on my page is that I feel like a lot of women who end up in toxic relationships have a history of trauma and or are very empathic. So what do you think it is about trauma and or being an empath? You can address them together or separate that causes women to be attracted to unhealthy partners. I think empathy in this is just my interpretation of it, but I, I've heard this from others and I thought that makes too much sense. So to me, empathy is kind of an indication that there's some poor boundaries going on. So mm-hmm. the good parts of it are like, oh, wow, you're highly sensitive mm-hmm. and you have a, a caring nature. On the other hand, if you are going to be empathic and come home exhausted because you felt too much of everybody else, it meant that you aren't capable of maintaining yourself and that you push that down to hold other people's energy instead. And that's where people think it's happening to them. I'm just empathic. I'm exhausted. This happened to me. You know, whereas we have that option once we learn how to create that boundary and hold space for people and ourselves too. So I think when we are suffering with an unhealthy version of that empathy, I think we tend to attract people that have a lot of bigger energy and that are happy that they found someone that will hold that for them. And that leads to a lot of women that have a history of that poor boundary setting. And maybe it is from trauma because maybe after the trauma, your boundaries were destroyed and you don't know how to put those back up anymore. So then you date someone who's got some narcissistic traits or maybe some selfish traits or maybe it's just a jerk. <laughs> and that that seems to be okay because maybe what we're attracted to in that time is someone who is more confident, has a sense of power that us feels safe in a way. So I think for me, it is that it's very much connected to boundaries. I think that's super interesting because I, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm putting pieces together in my brain and I feel like empathy and trauma a lot of times go together because when you go through a trauma, you learn to be very sensitive to the environments around you because that's one of your brain's way of keeping you safe. If you're sensitive to the environments around you, you can sense danger. And I think the other piece of it is we tend to maybe want to hold other people's energy because holding our own is too painful. And so we look for people who have these big charismatic personalities, these big energies who can make decisions and do all these things that give us a free pass from learning how to do this ourselves, which can feel very scary if you have a history of trauma. And so I think, but then that's not sustainable. Then those people often tend to want to control you and bring unsafe dynamics into the relationship. So I think it's a really interesting interplay. And I love everything you just added to it because that's exactly what I, you know, hope to say. And I think 
the control comes on also a little bit insidiously for a lot of those dynamics too because it starts out as concern almost and or like control sometimes in early stages is real expresses very romantic gestures which i think a lot of women miss so going back to your story you also mentioned that you initially attracted a healthy partner and then that ended up being an incompatible match and then when you attracted brad before that you kind of had some unhealthy almost like addictive type pattern behaviors that were exhibiting before your attraction to him so do you think that there is similarity between the neural pathways of kind of being gravitating towards addictive substances or addictive behaviors and not being able to get out of relationship with a toxic person because they feel like one major theme of toxic relationships is a lot of times they go on for a long time and you leave them and return to them and then it seems like there can be some similarities between those things a hundred percent i think you know there is this what i think drugs addiction relationships what they have in common is this intense withdrawal and so you know robin norwood is a very i guess well i don't know if she's popular now but in the 80s she's very popular um a psychotherapist and she specialized in love addiction and she said this is absolutely just as the same as drug abuse it can be just as dangerous you can get just as hurt you can fuck up your life just as bad and it's because when and I've experienced it. You know, when I have a breakup with a healthy person, it doesn't feel like it's going to take me down. But when it's that intensity that we're missing, because in those toxic relationships, the chemistry, the sex tend to be phenomenal, you know? And that's because chemistry tends to be this, or at least from my perspective, it's this buildup, you know? And in a lot of toxic relationships, it's, I don't know if I'm okay. Is he going to leave me? Like, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I hope, I hope, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And then you have sex and you feel reassured and it's, we're okay, you for now. And that build up with that reassurance combined with that sexual chemistry is unbelievably addictive. So it's this constant looking for it throughout the entire relationship. And then when that breakup happens, there's still part of us that thinks, well, the reassurance is going to come. I'm going to get that sometime. And then we feel this intense physical, emotional withdrawal. Like we are craving that oxytocin because we experience it on such an intense level. And that doesn't go along with the healthy dynamic of okay like i love this person and we fight a little bit and that it's a little bit smoother but that constant up and down intense thing i think really does mirror a lot of drug use where you get high and you crash you get high and you crash so i think love addiction is a a really good way to look at it when we are dealing with dating someone who's unhealthy and we're wondering why can't i drop this guy what's wrong with me like, well, you probably are a little addicted to this person. Love addiction is such a great term. And I think it's interesting because I feel like a lot of what can sometimes lead to chemistry is I think we're really programmed that if somebody feels like home, that that's love. And sometimes somebody feels like home because your mirror neurons are picking up on their unhealthy patterns that are complementary to yours, that are similar to yours, or similar to a trauma dynamic that you came from in your nervous system goes, ooh, a safe way to make what happened in the past okay and then it makes the dopamine hit and the oxytocin hit that much more addictive i think because let's say you're trying to fix like absentee male figures in your life just as a common example and then there's this person who you kind of learn the ropes of there's always the threat or we could say the thrill of them leaving and then you learn how to control the patterns so that there's that 
reconnection you said or that what was the word you used the exact word you used was better but it's that it's that that reassurance that reinforcement happens and then the dopamine hit and the oxytocin hit is so much stronger because it's not only oh that reinforcement is coming but it's also feeding all these childhood experiences you had where that didn't happen mm-hmm. and it's i think most women that experience that that difference between a healthy breakup and a breakup with someone that was well not healthy will say it's not like the rest like it just feels way more intense and i think that's why i can go on a lot longer you know and i've met a lot of women who after that kind of breakup don't date for a really long time mm-hmm. you know and i'm actually one of those women like i haven't dated in four years <laughs> but i think it just does take a long time to learn what it feels like to feel safe in yourself where you're not attracted to the the thrill as you know of having things be that intense and i think a lot of addiction is about escaping because what you're feeling is intolerable and so i think if we have that kind of relationship where some of what we feel is so intolerable and we depend on the partner to reassure us in some way break up get back together break up even better we just learn that's how we have to regulate our feelings and that is why it feels so bad when they go away So with all that going on, I feel like it can be really difficult to spot when somebody is actually unhealthy and it can take a lot more, it takes a lot more dramatic or bigger impetus to get us to really recognize, I have to leave because you have to get to a point where the safety of staying is less than the safety of leaving. So in your relationship with Brad, when, what, what were the circumstances that kind of allowed you to realize that this was unhealthy and gave you the strength to leave? You know, I had timed it, as one does in medical school, around exams, because you can't wake up before one. Right. Ah, so <laughs> I had, I remember I'd, I planned it that way. And uh, it'd been, you know, three years and we hadn't, I had met his family. He was very secretive. I didn't know how much money he made. I didn't know yeah. his middle name. I didn't know his family. I didn't know most of his friends. I met a few of them. He never wanted to talk about his childhood, what his parents were like. So there was so much secretiveness. And I think it was a power move, you know, for a lot of times that could be. And we had gotten to a place where we decided, look, like we, we just, we're going to get together. We're going to move in and we're going to do it. And it'd been years of like, oh no, no, that place is facing North. I can't possibly live there. And I don't want to live on that street. It's too close to this intersection and just ridiculous reasons why we could not get closer. And then when we finally moved in together, it lasted about 10 days because (laughs) we moved in. I was pretty happy. I was pretty excited. And he became very quiet, very distant, very cold. In the three years I'd known him, he was never the type to be on his phone. And when we moved in, he was just on it like nine hours a day, just would not get off his phone. And so I felt like he was telling me through his actions he did not want to be near me. And of course, when I would create some distance, go for walks, then he wanted my attention. So we never could find a space where we were comfortable being into with each other. It was always this one was chasing the other situation. And that would reverse all the time about who was chasing who. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually I said, you know what? I can't do this. I'm going to move out. I, I kept my old apartment because I had a feeling this I might need it. And then what was interesting was he said, no, we're not talking about this. And then he left the apartment. And I thought, what? Came back with furniture. And I was like, what's all this for? And he's like, I just thought this would go through the bedroom. And, and I felt a little bit like either he was losing it or I was. 
And I said, look, we really tell you what happened. And he said, nope. And then he got in the shower, came out. And I said, why can't we talk about this? He said, we're not talking about this. And I hadn't experienced that with him before. Anyways, over the next few days, he continued to buy. This is a person who's very frugal, but he bought more and more things for the apartment. And so I just moved my stuff out because the conversation was going to happen. And that's where I really felt like, I think this is going to stick this time. I don't think we can come back from this one. And what kept me out of it was he had dropped off quite a lengthy letter to my apartment with very specific details about how horrible he was and all the things he did that were wrong, how sorry he was for making me feel so bad about myself. And I thought, this is very detailed. You clearly knew what you were doing if you were this self-aware. And what was interesting, in this 14-page letter, he only mentioned me one time. So I looked at it and I thought, okay, I think this person really is more selfish than I understood. And I kept that letter for years as just a reminder of like, this is the kind of person, like even when we break up, he's still this kind of guy. And that's how, for me, I was able to manage to stick with it, except for actually one more thing. One of my best friends, she called and she said, and one of the big things we thought about was money. And she said, look, I'll give you the six grand. I don't care. Just move. And I thought, you would, you're my friend. You're just going to be giving money. And he and I are fighting over $100. And it just made me think, whoa, like my friend cares more about me than someone who's supposed to love me. And that was enough on this pile of reasons to, to, keep, to keep it going. It's interesting to me that you kept your apartment because I have a theory that when we're, when, as women, when we're in toxic relationships, once those behaviors start to exhibit, we kind of deep down know all along that it's not going to work, but we have this like, I don't know, savior complex is the right term that we're always, we're always just, once we turn this one corner, then the relationship's going to be everything that we feel like it's going to be. So that's interesting. But you, you mentioned a lot of controlling behaviors, which are on the narcissistic spectrum. And I don't think everyone in a toxic relationship is a narcissist, but I think narcissistic traits and empathic people or people with a history of trauma is a really common toxic relationship dance. And I'm interested here with your medical background, especially because you specialize in mental health, what is the difference between someone who has narcissistic traits and someone who has narcissistic personality disorder And what are some of the red flags women can be looking for that they may be with someone who has narcissistic traits? So I think it's a really good question. And I really appreciate it because I think narcissism has become the new word for psycho. You know, every time someone's talking about their ex, they just will flat out label them as a narcissist. And then (laughs) it's just a way to totally discredit someone's character. It's a total dismantling word. And I'm not sure it's totally fair all the time, you know? So I think what I would say is narcissist people with narcissistic personality disorder have narcissistic traits, but not every narcissist will have the personality disorder. And there are similarities. So with the narcissism trait as a whole, we're looking at things like, you know, a, an overinflated sense of self and feeling like you deserve a lot, not super empathic because you care more about yourself has a tendency to feel they deserve lots of fantastical things, like an amazing job, an amazing partner. And so that's pretty common. You know, we a lot of women have dated some guy like that. Yeah. Um, and Brad was certainly like that. And I think where we get to the personality disorder part is where it's pervasive. So that means it has to cross over occupational and social relationships in that person's life is not just the person they're dating. So if you're dating someone 
and they're fine with their family and they hold on a job just fine and everything seems to be okay except the relationship probably not a personality disorder because personality disorders happen over years it's chronic and it's like i said pretty pervasive in that way most of the time people that have a diagnosis it's a it's severe enough to disrupt that person's life and ability to function so we see more things with crime if you most of the people diagnose most murderers out there have the diagnosis so it's an extreme thing beyond just the character trait of narcissism for narcissism it has a lot to do with empathy and i think in our culture we have this rating system of, or at least we should but like a lot of people think of it like you're empathic or you're not but there's this kind of range of people that struggle with empathy and like okay how bad of a struggle is it and that can play a huge role into how potentially narcissistic someone might be in that dynamic. But when you're dating someone, I think some things to watch for are how you feel and act in the relationship. Because we have a tendency to want to diagnose everybody. You know, like, what's wrong with them? But I think the bigger question is, why are we dating them? Well, I always encourage, especially women, to look at how you're feeling. Do you have an insane amount of anxiety? You're not sure why. You're trying to figure out what's wrong with you. If you didn't have it before this person, then possible it's a relationship possible it's trauma but maybe it's actually this particular dynamic and i also think it's important to kind of look at the facts as they come up and really rely on your friends if you have a history of toxic relationships ask your friends you know and because they're going to see it a little differently than you do and if they're noticing some of those traits then they may be able to let you know because again we're looking for things that indicate this person might be at some point, so unempathic that it is going to hurt you. And I think that's why I would say narcissistic relationships are kind of like the secondhand spoke of the mental health world, because they're not just bad for them, they're bad for anyone around them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the majority, probably, of women who have been in toxic relationships, they're not in a relationship with a clinical narcissist. But they're in a relationship with someone who maybe displays more narcissistic traits. It might be peppered into lots of areas of their lives, but something about relationship really amplifies that. So what do you think it is about romantic relationships that tends to amplify those narcissistic type of tendencies? I think it's romantic relationships and also work dynamics. And I think those are the two areas where we see most of those character traits and trauma things come out for people because we're dealing with issues of authority. That's going to bring up childhood stuff. And who's in charge? And, you know, and when? And when do we share that power? We're also going to have issues with money. You know, work and you know, money issues are huge for people. Because people, I don't think people get nearly as upset about anything else besides money. Like, as soon as you tell people something about financial consciousness and people get real, like, because they're so intent on their beliefs. So I think those two things are going to bring up a lot of emotions for people. And I think any area where, where we have to, at least on our culture, be somewhat vulnerable for that relationship to go forward, then there is more of a risk for how we're going to interpret someone's reactions to us. And a lot of people with empathy issues tend to be oversharers. They tend to just vomit out all the vulnerable stories in their lives and <laughs> just like this is what's going on um and then what happens is the narcissistic person is going to tend to pull away and then that person who just shared a lot is going to go all in and they're going to share even more you know like well i didn't do enough and then it becomes this i gotta do more pull back I do more pull back 
and then it'll switch at some point. And they actually call it the intimacy gap. So what it means is typically the person that struggles with abandonment and empathy and all those issues, they tend to know consciously they're afraid of abandonment. They're fully aware of that. They just aren't really aware that they're afraid of intimacy. You know, so they pick people that they know can't fully commit because then they know they can't fully become intimate with that person because there's no actual complete letting go. Now, the other person, the one that struggles with narcissism and I'm too good for everybody else and, and, you know, I'm waiting for my perfect, perfect, perfect everything and, you know, everybody should pay more attention to me, all that kind of stuff. They want more of that attention. They are completely aware they're afraid of intimacy. They know that. They like to have a little bit of control from a distance. They're unconsciously aware that they are also terrified of abandonment. So what this means is we see this hot and cold dance multiple breakups all the time and why we can continue to switch around and switch roles we'll never fully experience intimacy together but we will completely just reverse roles and dance around the concepts and so it becomes this sort of like when you're in a relationship you're the exciting parts of the first three months typically chemically speaking that's when your oxytocin will drop but you can actually prolong that significantly and a quote-unquote toxic relationship because the chemistry is so intense. So your hormones will go way longer than three months in terms of we, you know, if that makes sense. It does. It's such a good explanation of, I think, something that is a really super common dynamic. And I love what you said about a lot of times the people with the empathy issues, they, like, people with empathy issues feel like we're connectors, you know? And they don't cognitively realize that, they're actually afraid of that intimacy because they're always wanting to reach for connection. But that was a big moment for me in my own journey when I realized I keep attracting emotionally unavailable people because I am emotionally unavailable somewhere at some level that's existing in me. The other thing that you brought up that was so interesting to me is I feel like we've talked a bit about traits. Like these are traits to look out for. These are traits Brad had. And I think a lot of women when getting out of toxic relationships make the mistake of I'm just going to look for somebody with different traits or the opposite traits. But you brought up something really interesting and that you decided to just take time to learn to feel safe again in yourself. Um, It's a very different approach to a breakup or to recovering from a breakup or recovering from toxic relationship histories to instead look at yourself. So what do you think it is? You can answer this specifically for you. What was it inside of you? Or if you feel like it would be more helpful for women, what you think it is inside us that tends to drive that attraction? And what do we need to do? How do we look inside of ourselves to heal and change who we attract instead of looking for someone new to be attracted to? I think the reason why I find for me and for a lot of women that the alone time after a toxic breakup can be so healing is because some i'll compare it to drugs again so we'll just talk about alcoholism so if somebody struggled with alcohol you just have to stop drinking for a while yes you also have to work on the answer isn't find a different drink find a different drug that's not gonna fix it Seltzer <laughs> water <laughs> and so if you if you separate yourself from the the stimulating issue or whatever it is it's causing this to come out of you and then also work on healing that, then I think we're going to be in a better spot to try again at some point. It, I think the theory of I'm going to break up with this person and then date a healthy one next 
implies that the person was the problem all along. And in reality, I'm not convinced that's the case. Not to blame at all, but just looking for a source of origin. The question is, again, why was I attracted to that person? Why did I let it go on so long? What is it about me that was okay with that? And is that really going to go away with the next person? Or do I have to do something to make sure I keep myself safe next time around? And again, it's not that women are doing anything wrong. It's that most of us have been through a lot of trauma and we just don't know what safe is supposed to feel like. Yeah. So how do you recommend, I mean, I heard you mention some questions that are good to answer. How do you recommend cultivating safety in ourselves, being familiar with what that feels like and taking a good self-evaluation? And I don't, I think this is different for everyone, but I'm curious what it was for you. For me, I read an amazing book called Women Who Love Too Much by Robin Norwood. Hmm. It is the most intense self-help book I've ever read. Okay. Because <laughs> you read it. Everyone says the same thing that I tell this book to. They go, wow, that the mother in the first chapter is my mother. Mm-hmm. And then you read it and you go, oh, because she calls you out. And she says, if you don't realize how sick you are, you're not going to stop. Like, it's not a comfy, sweet, sugary learn to love yourself kind of self-help book. It is a, it's a slap in the face, but it really helped me understand how dangerous my situation was because I don't, I really didn't understand. So it, it did take, and I think it's because a lot of us, we struggle with worthiness. So we don't know it's that bad. Our friends see it. We think that they're just being our friends and we write it off. And in reality, maybe it is that bad. And the other thing I did was I went to slay meetings, which are sex and love addicts anonymous. Hmm. I would recommend if women are going to do that, go to a women's only meeting. Mixed was literally insane. It's like putting the hens and the foxes together. It's way too triggering. And I've had a lot of women tell me the same thing. And also I found that just what I see in clinically speaking, because I treat a lot of sex and love addiction, more men struggle with sex addiction, more women struggle with love addiction. Love addiction meaning like, I want the perfect relationship and I miss being in love and chemistry so important, fantasy brain, like all that kind of stuff compared to sex addiction, which is all more of a, a phys- technically a physical issue. A lot of issues regulating dopamine, the relationships involve a lot more adultery and things like that. So sex versus love, you know, fantasy versus sex. So I think that can be helpful to see women and going through what you've been through. And a lot of women will eventually get to that place where they start to see how peaceful that being single situation is. And then they don't want to date anymore. So then, you know, it's avoidance behavior. And that's okay. Sometimes that is for the best. And I'm, I'm definitely doing that. <laughs> that's okay. We love a self-aware. <laughs> I know, right? I know too. And I think it's also important to start looking at the men you're attracted to or the women and ask yourself why. So if you see someone and you go, ooh, why? Why? Is it because they're moody? Is it because they're standoffish? Is it because they're tall, dark, and handsome? Like, what is it about them? Because you picked up on something. And it's not just this innate, like, I have no idea. Like, we're, you know, so really start to pay attention to why. And it's going to be very uncomfortable if you've got a history of traumatic relationships to start dating guys that are quote unquote nice because they will come off as boring. And there's nothing worse to someone who's been through trauma as anything boring because boring makes you anxious so i think asking that question is crucial and also looking at your friends relationships and trying to get a sense of what's healthy about it and what's not and start to look for relationships you can be inspired by because if you have it in your head that all relationships suck and there aren't any good ones and i haven't had any good models and all men suck it kind of keeps you stuck 
into me versus them. And we want to create this sense of connection where it's safe to feel like, oh, I could be happy with someone if that's what you want. Yeah. Well, that was fire and so much good stuff in there. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my book, my book is about the year of kind of cultivating that learning to be independent and learning to dive into some of these things. And so I think there's so much that you can work through when you have a kind of a more silent period or a dating break or something like that. And it's really kind of centers around this concept that the ending actually can be your greatest gift because it can be the platform for which you discover yourself. You just have to do some of the work that you mentioned. So I really like that. And sorry, you go. Oh, good. I was going to say another piece that I would like to get into with you. It's a little bit of a different direction, though, is you you've mentioned a couple of times how you were belittled in this relationship and how he kind of preyed on a lot of your weaknesses, I would say things that, you know, something like a history of self-harm, that's something that in a healthy relationship would be protected. You give a vulnerability and then that's protected. Whereas in a toxic relationship, vulnerability often is weaponized against you. I think that's a really good example of gaslighting, which is the trendy term. And I think kind of like narcissism, people kind of apply it to whatever feels right to them. So, but I think you have some genuine examples of that in your relationship. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is gaslighting? How did you experience that in your relationship? And what is a good way to respond to that or to handle gaslighting? So gaslighting is the technique and it was actually from a play i think it was tennessee williams and it was he had i guess she said are you going to get like i forget how it goes but she basically tells him to light the gas thingy and he's like i did and she's like no you didn't and he like no i didn't like to her face i'm probably butchering it but the point is it's the act or technique of blatantly telling somebody that they are not seeing what they're actually seeing (laughs) and making them feel crazy about it is the result so an example for me, let's see, was uh, I remember I had been really, really nervous about about money. I was really stressed about student loans and I don't want to piss off. And I remember I was crying about it and he said, oh my God, this this is so much. I don't know what you're going to do, which obviously it's not much on here. Right. And I was like, I know, I know. And he's like, I think you should just change. You should drop out of school and you should become a nurse. And I was like, what, really? okay and he's like yeah don't you think and I was like I don't I don't know do I and it just sort of became this really interesting conversation of like what do I want and then later it was no I never told you that I never told you to go into nursing and I was like yeah you did he's like okay and I was like what did I and then you kind of wondered did I make that up did I remember it wrong what happened and there were a lot of times where a lot of insecurities I had. I was nervous about money. I was worried about him accepting the self-harming and the OCD. And I was also concerned about, you know, the the I had the diagnosis of borderline at the time because that wasn't, you know, adjusted to later. Um, so I was pretty anxious about that. And it seemed like whenever I shared information with him, it just, it became more about him and what he was dealing with. So... I think most people, when they share something vulnerable, they want to be comforted. Like, hey, are you okay? And, you know, but in this example or this person, you know, I was never comforted. It was always like a shame situation, Hmm. which changes the dynamic a lot of how you feel about yourself. And I think the more you get worn down in a relationship, 
the more you do start to question everything. And it's very easy for gaslighting to happen because you take their word for it because you can trust them. You can't trust yourself. So it takes a while for that stuff to kind of build up, I think. Yeah, I, I think the gaslighting is a control mechanism. I think that's why we see it so often in toxic relationships. And it's interesting that your example was about finances. I had it in my toxic relationship was gaslit also about finances. He used to tell me, you're never going to be able to pay off your loans and you're going to be dependent on me because of that. And so I'm going to, that entitles me to all the relationship decisions. And so it's interesting that there's that money piece to it. I think that's something we sometimes see in toxic relationships is gaslighting or control around money because money, there is some inherent power dynamics to money. And so it's just another way that they can bolster up their control. That being said, I think sometimes, especially if you have a history of trauma, when you're gaslit, you have a freeze response to it. You go into fight, flight, or freeze. And so it can take a really long time to realize that you are being gaslit. So how would you recommend people recognize that and start responding differently to it mm, again this is where asking your friends can be huge because if you're struggling with worthiness and self-love you love that person probably more than you want to save the relationship more than anything else then it can be really hard to use your own barometer because it kind of needs calibration so asking your friends for insight can be huge and for it's not uncommon like i've been there my friends told me that my ex was doing something wrong, I thought they were just trying to get me to be single. I was convinced people wanted me to be alone. You know, that's how deep I was. Uh, and it's the same with, you see that with eating disorders too. Like people, they're just trying to make me fat. No, they're not. They just want you to eat, you know. Yeah. But we are so deep in it that we think that we have a hard time. And it's this trust barometer is broken. But if you can get to a place where you can hold that space for them to help give you some insight, be open to it, until you can get to a place where you start to feel your feelings and go, wait a second, why do I feel this? How come I feel this way when I just had a conversation? Not analyzing what they said and how they said it, but just sitting with your feelings, does it match up to what just happened? And chances are, if you can get a sense of that, you'll kind of figure out if it was inappropriate or not. I think one thing you said that was really key there is asking your friends because in toxic relationships, another common control tactic is isolation. So I would add to that if you don't have friends or your partner is trying to get you to not talk to your friends about relationship dynamics at all, that could be a red flag that you are in a toxic relationship and that there's probably gaslighting and control mechanisms going on. If you don't have friends that you can talk to, you definitely need to, need to bail on that relationship. 100%. I remember he wanted to know exactly what we talked about, but only with him. What'd you say about me? What'd you say about us? And then it would lead to a fight. Why are you telling people that? You know, so I felt pressured to tell him something, even though it's my personal information. Right. And then I was punished for whatever I was saying, which made me feel conditioned not to share more with my friends. So there's a lot of, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not diagnosing, I'm not saying this is what his intentions were. I don't know what they were. He may not even know. All I know is what I was doing in the relationship. And that's always going to be my point is if you're dating someone like that, it's so tempting to figure out like what's wrong with them. Why are they doing that? What's their diagnosis? Think more about you because you'll get way more answers that way. I think that's such a big piece. Otherwise, you're going to keep diagnosing the same person or partner in, in a different body a million times. <laughs> yes. 
So my last question for you would be, or my last kind of topical question for you would be, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about your work with love addiction and sex addiction and what you do from kind of a medical perspective with that. So I treat, I would say more of my women are dealing with love addiction, more of my men deal with sex addiction. So I don't do any counseling. It's, you know, not part of my scope. I do more of the physical parts of what people are dealing with chemically. And I always recommend books, big self-help book kind of person. (laughs) So I have noticed that more of my men that struggle with sex addiction typically also struggle with porn addiction. And there seems to be sort of a, a disconnect with intimacy as well. And they have shown in the research that the more porn that's used to excess will actually dysregulate the dopamine receptors because you're just getting these hits. You know, like there's nothing in nature that will typically let someone have an orgasm as quickly as porn. So it's not something we can replicate. And that usually indicates that we're going to exhaust those receptors pretty quickly. Now, that's not watching porn one time. That's, again, excessive use over time. The other thing I would say is it can dysregulate someone's ability to form connections and feel intimacy. Because again, if we're getting that much dopamine that quickly and potentially some oxytocin when there's not a person there, the brain doesn't understand why, but it will adapt to it. And in reality, when you're going on a date with someone, you know, you've got all these hormones happening, you're smelling that person's pheromones, you might touch them. And over the course of hours, you're building up that chemistry and that tension. And even the act of taking off someone's clothes could take quite a long time. So we're not talking about five minutes of watching porn. We're talking about hours, you know, over the day or evening, building that up. So the body has a chance to adapt to that. So we want to increase someone's, if they're struggling with that, we work on techniques they can do to start changing the relationship they have with intimacy and with those sense, or I guess their interpretation of sex and what that's supposed to feel like and what the orgasm means. So we'll dive into that. For women with love addiction, uh, I always recommend books. (laughs) I encourage Slay and those kinds of groups. Anything 12 stuff I'm pretty happy about. Not everyone likes that, so teach us on. And then I usually try doing different, well, I'll either run labs or we'll recommend different supplements to see if we can regulate the nervous system a little bit because sometimes if we can do that, it will take the edge off, makes therapy a lot easier. So they did this. There's a a German clinic. It's really fascinating, but they're doing phobia work. And so people go on these rows with their biggest fear, like tarantulas or whatever, but they're given a beta blocker first. And the idea is, you know, if we can reduce someone's heart rate, then maybe the brain will not think that they're as scared as they are because it never increases. And then maybe we can resolve the phobia. It's kind of an interesting idea. I, I don't know. But the point is sometimes we, you know, we can hit things from multiple angles to see if we can make things easier. So I like to help people on the physical level so that way they're not white knuckling their way through therapy is hard. And so that way we can, because I mean, things happen. Like we learn when you're addicted to love, you tend to get addicted to those chemicals and you get addicted to your own stress, you know, and that's how you regulate yourself as you're trying to create stress and turn it off, you know, and you do that with coffee and food and sleep and scary movies and all that kind of stuff. So if we can learn to kind of, you know, turn that back around, then obviously the therapy can be less intense and we can get more work done that way too. That's super fascinating. I just love that you work with that. That's amazing. So if people want to work with you or they want to follow you to get more information on this kind of thing and then mental health in general, I know you share a lot on a lot more broad mental health topics, where can they find you? 
Oh, they can find me. I'm on Instagram. So that's Dr. Julia Britz. And also through my website, if people want to, they can schedule a free 15 minute consult. I like to talk to people first just to make sure that we're a good fit because it's team care for me. Like it's, I don't want to just, you know, throw things at people. I want to make sure if I'm helping somebody, it's because I truly believe I can and that I think it's going to be successful. And then if not, I always recommend somebody else. So I think it's going to be a better fit. But those are the two best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, I'll drop both of those links attached to this video. And thank you so much for taking time to share your story and your expertise. I think you covered so many things that women are going to, and actually anyone watching this video, but it is a little female focus. And if uh, that people are really going to grow from, I think. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Women Who Roar podcast. Today, I have an update for you. In this episode, Dr. Julia talked about her need to take a break from dating relationships in order to heal. Since the recording of this podcast, she has entered into a healthy and happy relationship. If you're still healing from the effects of a difficult relationship, I hope this gives you hope. If you want to share these stories of hope and healing to other women, please like and subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share the episodes. Also consider picking up a copy of Losing You, Finding You from Amazon or my website, chelseazarcon.com. Can't wait to chat again in the next episode.